The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here's your top five at five. A stock's strong start to the week continuing to fizzle a bit on Omicron concerns and economic data. Futures are fighting for gains this morning. Key on the top of investors' minds today, inflation data out in just a couple of hours, potentially, potentially coming at the highest level in 40 years. In Washington, the Senate clearing a key hurdle in that race to raise the U.S. debt limit with just days to get that job done. New data on the rising risks of rising temperatures and the dramatic impact on local economies, especially lower-income communities, and the ongoing supply chain issues and crunches set to potentially dampen the holiday spirit this year as toy shortages leave some parents scrambling for gifts. It's Friday, December 10th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good Friday morning. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan, and here's how your money and the global markets are setting their day up. Stock futures right now indicating some modest moves to the upside, but they're very stable right now. Some modest moves. The Dow Jones implied higher by just about eight points. We're going to call that pretty much unchanged. The S&P up by about seven handles and the Nasdaq composite and Nasdaq 100 up by about 28 or so points here overall. So watch those trades. Modest moves to the upside to maybe close out this week. Those major indices falling Thursday as investors digested weekly jobless claims data and the latest global restrictions targeting the spread of that COVID Omicron variant. Right now, the Dow is ending flat while the S&P dropped three quarters of a percent. Technology was the big loser with the Nasdaq down about one and three quarters percent, though. Still, all three indices looking at strong gains for the week. The Dow is up about 3.5%, while the S&P and NASDAQ are up close to 3%. We also want to get a check on the Treasury market right now with the 10-year benchmark Treasury note yield climbing back above that 1.5% mark currently, 1.5% for that benchmark 10-year note yield. The two-year note yield just about 71, 72 basis points. So again, some moves there. The 30-year long bond, 1.88%. Let's also get a look at the crypto space with Bitcoin back below that 50,000 mark. We seem to be moving right around these levels, hovering around that 50,000 mark. Currently, Bitcoin price is 48,490, 2% upside there. Ether prices, about half a percent upside, $4,121 there as well. Let's now go worldwide. Juliana Tattlebaum is in London with the latest look at the early trade in Europe. Good morning, Juliana. Dom, good morning. Well, we're off to a fairly subdued start here in Europe. Every region is trading lower, but the moves are contained. We've got about a third of a percent down for the German index, the DAX, the CAC 40 over in France, down about four-tenths of a percent. Here in the UK, the FTSE 100 holding up a little bit better, down by about 11 basis points. We did get some data out of the UK this morning. The UK economy grew by just 0.1 percent in October. These were according to new official monthly figures, despite a strong performance by the health sector and 
secondhand car sales, um, but still very muted growth. So investors digesting that. Coming into today's session, worth noting, though, the stock 600, the benchmark here in Europe, up 3% on the week on pace to break a three-week losing streak. So we have had a positive run into the end of the week. From a sector perspective, this is what the picture looks like in Europe. We've got a few sectors trading above the flat line, namely autos up more than 1%, basic resources, banks, and oil and gas. On the downside, some underperformance in technology down about 1%, retail, industrials, and healthcare. Um, John, but investors over here are closely going to be watching that U.S. inflation print this afternoon. So a little bit of a holding pattern here as well. Juliana Tattlebaum, live in London. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. Now to some of this morning's top stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good morning. Happy Friday. Dom, so the Senate has cleared a key hurdle in the race to raise the U.S.'s debt limit. Lawmakers voting last night to allow that chamber to raise the borrowing limit with a simple majority. That measure now heads to President Biden's desk for his approval. The Senate and the House will now have to hold separate votes to increase the debt ceiling. Both chambers are expected to do so early next week before the Wednesday deadline to do so. Volvo has announced a new partnership with battery manufacturer Northvolt to open a research and development center as well as a new manufacturing plant in Sweden. The move is part of a more than $3 billion investment by the automaker, and it follows the announcement made by the pair earlier this year saying that they would form a joint venture to develop and produce sustainable batteries to power electric Volvo and Polestar cars. And shares of Beyond Meat getting grilled in the pre-market after Taco Bell reportedly canceled a planned test run of a product featuring the company's alternative version of carne asada. That's according to Bloomberg. The Yum! brand's fast food chain was not happy with samples of the product back in October. The report adds that another test run could still happen. Beyond Meat announced in February that it had a multi-year deal with Yum! that also included the company's KFC and Pizza Hut chains. Dom. All right, Silvana, thank you very much for that. Okay. Back on Wall Street, investors are bracing for the latest read on November inflation. Estimates from Dow Jones are calling for a 6.7% rise in consumer prices from the same time last year. A read, by the way, that would be the highest since June of 1982. And if you strip out the cost of food and fuel, prices are expected to have risen about 4.9% year on year. A read that would also hit multi-year highs. In this case, the highest reading since June of 1991. Either way, you get the idea. Consumers are getting hit hard. Just listen to what Hormel Foods chairman and CEO Jim Snee told our own Jim Cramer on Mad Money last night. A number of our inputs have started to moderate for a number of our products. But, I mean, when you think about the labor increases that we've had, increases in our, our packaging, other supplies, getting the product shipped, as you mentioned, I mean, that inflation is it's real, it's significant, and it's being passed along in the form of of higher pricing. All right, though, while the consumer gets squeezed for stocks, it's all about the Fed and what it might do in the face of a white hot read when it comes to its plans to taper bond purchases in what could be the first interest rate hike in years down the line. Joining me now is Mark Fleming, chief economist at First American Financial. This has been a double-pronged attack for investors that they've had to deal with for a while. The concerns about Omicron and then the concerns about inflation in the Fed, which in your mind is going to be the biggest dominant theme in the coming, say, six to 12 months? I think the the theme from the market's perspective will clearly be the Fed. Um, We've had a decade now of extremely low 
um, accommodative monetary policy, both tapering and low rates. The accommodative policy tapering will go away and probably we will pull forward the rate increase. But I don't know that that necessarily affects things or affects the real world. I mean, what's going on is supply shortage and things like that affected by the by the pandemic and Omicron again. Um, the Fed has a lot less ability to measure that. And I just looked up this morning, 10-year yields at 1.5% with inflation now around 6 or 7. Um, in 1981-82, when inflation was this high again, the 10-year yield was over 10%. So there's a big disconnect there. So there's a big, big disconnect, no doubt, Mark. But, but a lot of that, and it's rightly pointed out, a lot of that has to do with the Fed itself, right? We're still in pandemic-era policies. And forget about that. We're still in great financial crisis recovery policies going back to 2009, 2010. So, so maybe the, the, the policy normalization, is, is it long overdue? Or, or can we expect volatility to happen just because we haven't seen any kind of real normality to interest rates or monetary policy in years? I've forgotten when normal last was, actually. It seems like maybe this is the new normal. It's, uh, like you said, 10 years of it. Um, But absolutely, I think it's time, it has been time, to remove uh, certainly the tapering. If you look at the the long yields on bonds and you look at mortgages, which are reflective of bond prices, you know, in the housing market with house price appreciation so high, you know, we don't need accommodative monetary policy in places like the housing market, and we haven't needed it for a while. So um, overdue, possibly. The impact, I think, will be whether it can actually bring down inflation, and that's much more difficult. Raising rates and removing the policy that's so accommodative doesn't necessarily immediately translate into um, lower, um, lower inflation because a lot of that inflation is driven by things in the real economy, less the financial economy. Mark, I mean, let, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about this, that this notion here that inflation, it is, a, it is a real threat. There's no doubt about it. We've been feeling it everywhere. It doesn't matter what you buy. Things are going up in value. But how big of a threat is it down the line? How persistent do you think it is? I'm trying not to use that T word that Fed Chair Jay Powell is, is trying to get rid of, you know, get out of the lexicon now at this point. Right. Uh, temporary or transitory or not, I think one of the most interesting things about inflation at the moment is we always used to believe that what really made it come to bear or hold for the long run, in other words, not be transitory, was expectations. And expectations about inflation in the future would drive your desire for wages now and should get this wage inflation spiral concept. Um, but there's interesting research that now says it, maybe that doesn't come first. And so does it, it's the chicken and the egg problem. Does it, expectations drive current inflation now or does current inflation drive expectations? So Research says now we're not quite clear on whether it's the chicken that came first or the egg that came first. What that means is we really are having a hard time trying to understand as economists um, that, uh, you know, whether it will hold for the long run or not. It's sort of the great um, unknown at this point. Um, But like you said, it's clear it affects the individual today. And we're seeing um, that prices are more expensive. I find it interesting that we take out food and fuel. That's probably some of the most important things that people see in in their own experience. And that's where they feel and begin to expect what prices will look like. Two of the things I really only have to spend on, food and fuel for me. Mark Fleming, thank you very much. Have a nice weekend. Thank you. When we come back on the show, check out what's happening with the metaverse. The stocks, Jeffrey says, could get a big boost as we shift into the virtual worlds. Plus, your morning's big money movers, including what's taking a bite out of shares of one e-commerce company in that mystery chart right there. And then later on, Elon Musk unloading more shares of Tesla. 
Details on how much more of the stock he's sold off. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. It's a word on the tip of nearly everyone's tongue in technology, metaverse. And while the company formerly known as Facebook appears to be the poster child for what could very well be the next Internet, many other companies are only just dipping their toes into the water right now. But that's not stopping some on Wall Street from firming up and firing up some of those buy signals on a technology they say could disrupt human life as we know it today. Joining me now is one of those meta bulls, Simon Powell, global head of thematic research over at Jefferies. I'm seeing you and you're actually a person. You're not an avatar. So, Simon, how big of a person that a, a metaverse person could you be if I don't even see you in a kind of characterized format right now? Yeah, look, I think the way to think about this, Dominic, if for those of us who are around in the late 80s, that's kind of, and, and asking what is the Internet going to be? That's kind of where we are in 2021, asking what can the metaverse be? So we can only imagine what it can be. And at at one end of the spectrum, it can be highly transformative uh, and highly disruptive. The way to think about it is all human activity that hasn't moved online is about to move online in the next five to 10 years. Um, And you'll be able to choose whether to live your life entirely in a digital world or in this hybrid of digital and physical. You know, Simon, it's interesting because if there was a company, I would say, that is so well positioned for this, it would be Facebook's now meta platforms. Because I remember the early days of of Farmville when people used to go online and buy and spend money on things like virtual sheep and cows and and tractors and equipment and everything else. But just how big of a deal is this and and how do companies cash in and and, and who's going to be doing it? Well, the, the, the point you raise is interesting. And the question as to whether Facebook or, or, or other big tech players are going to dominate this or not is up for grabs. Because when you talk to people building things like the Sandbox or Decentraland, at the heart of their version of the Metavox, uh, the Metaverse, sorry, is, is, is decentralized Web 3.0. So it's not controlled by one company. It's controlled by the group. It's linked to the blockchain um, and 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 it sits on decentralized servers. So I think that debate is still up 
in terms of whether it's going to be decentralized or centralized. So if you're if you were to say you're going to make an investment thesis out of out of the future of the metaverse, where would the core portfolio be? It, it, would it be meta platforms? Who else makes up the infrastructure of what, what could be this metaverse, this kind of decentralized peer-to-peer world of interacting and, and because we know I mean, everybody kind of comes in on the periphery right brands can get in in some ways by yeah. selling goods that sort of thing but but who makes the backbone uh, of what you think the metaverse will be well you touched on it so take yourself back and i was around in the late 80s take yourself back what did you want to own from 1989 to 2000 you wanted to own the cisco's of the world and i think the same is going to be true for a metaverse so you want to think about the chip makers this is going to require a huge amount of computing power you're going to want to own the device manufacturers the people making these vr headsets uh it's all about infrastructure for the next few years then it moves on to software Uh, who's going to develop the technology and the platforms, and then it moves into the use cases. And I think it will follow a similar route as we saw internet late 80s into the noughties, into into the last decade, where it was all about business cases and and use cases. I think the metaverse could play out in a similar way. So, so Simon, who are those companies? Uh, Is is it NVIDIA? Is it AMD? Is it is it Cisco again? Is it Sienna? Is it who who is it that that does this stuff? It's all of the chip makers that you mentioned, because the computing power required to get us into this metaverse, the amount of artificial intelligence that's going to be needed to create digital twins that are going to represent you in this metaverse, that computing power probably is more than we've previously envisaged. So if you think about, uh, you know, sell-side predictions for what's needed on chipsets required for, for, for mining cryptos, and then throw in a bull case on the metaverse, there's significant potential upside from a computing power perspective. So it's definitely chipsets. It's definitely 5G. It's definitely much more uh, server farms. It's much more cloud. Um, It's just much more computing grunt that's needed as a backbone to give you this three-dimensional immersive world. And then it's all the stuff that's happening in virtual reality headsets. So take a look at the Oculus. Look how quickly it's, it's selling. Have a look at what potentially Apple might bring to the market in 2022 in terms of a VR headset. All right. Simon Powell with the latest on the metaverse there. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you. Still on deck for the show. The other word outside of metaverse on the tip of everyone's tongue these days is, yes, inflation. As Google tells employees, higher pay is not on the way to help with rising prices. Today's big number, 391. That's how many IPOs have priced this year according to data from Renaissance Capital. That's up about 90% from the same period last year. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers, three stock stories of the morning. Stock number one is Chewy. Those shares are falling after the pet e-commerce company reported a wider-than-expected loss for the third quarter, as well as a miss on new customer additions. Revenue, though, did match estimates. Chewy citing supply chain disruptions, labor shortages, and higher inflation for the weaker numbers. But its CEO telling Errol Jib Kramer last night on Mad Money there are improving signals on that front. The port congestions are starting to alleviate, so that I would put to be a near-term uh, you know, constraint. And then uh, labor and material is anybody's guess at this point, and uh, we're essentially reacting to something like that in real time. All right, so keep an eye on those Chewy shares. They're down about 11% right now in the pre-market. Stock number two is Oracle. Those shares taken off after second quarter earnings and revenues topped analyst expectations. Oracle also forecasting an upbeat third quarter, citing a rebound in IT spending, and those shares are up 11% in the pre-market trade. And then stock number three is Broadcom. Shares are also climbing higher on its fourth quarter earnings and revenue beat as well. The chip and software company also providing strong guidance for the quarter ahead and also raising its dividend while also announcing a new stock repurchase program. All kinds of things happening. That's leading to a net 6% gain for Broadcom in the pre-market trade. Well, still on deck for the show, your exclusive look at the biggest insider buys, including the largest stock purchase ever seen as a part of this weekly segment that Brian does every Friday. Here's a tip. It's by one of Facebook's founders. We'll be right back. The stock market rally fighting to regain its footing this morning as investors gear up for that very critical inflation number out in just a couple of hours. Facebook facing new pressure from Congress as another senator calls for investigations into the tech giant. And Elon Musk selling even more shares of Tesla stock as the CEO continues to unload his stake in the EV maker. It is Friday, December 10th, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan. This is Worldwide Exchange, and here is how your money and investments are looking as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. Right now, stock futures are pointing to gains, but they're modest ones. The Dow is implied higher by just about one point right now. The S&P higher by about six, and the Nasdaq by about 18 to 19. Now, the major indices falling Thursday as investors digested weekly jobless claims data and the latest global restrictions targeting the spread of the COVID Omicron variant. The Dow ending the day pretty flat, while the S&P dropped three quarters of a percent, as you can see there. And the big loser was the Nasdaq, down about 1.7 percent. Still, though, all three indices are looking at strong gains for the week. The Dow is up roughly three and a half percent, and the S&P and Nasdaq are up nearly three percent at this point. Let's dive into the sectors with a, ta- with a look at the three 
sectors that are in big focus up for at least this week here. Technology and energy. On a year-to-date basis, you can see some of the big gains there. Those two sectors were the biggest gainers over the last one-week period. Meanwhile, consumer staples and underperformers so far this year was also the worst-performing sector over the last week. But here are the moves on a year-to-date basis to kind of show you some of the context that we're talking about. That real cyclical trade, economically sensitive one, is starting to come to life again, at least in certain parts of the market. Now... Turning to the mega cap technology trade and communication services trade that has been driving a lot of that. Take a look on a one week basis at shares of Apple, Microsoft and Alphabet, the three biggest stocks in the S&P and the Nasdaq. They've been driving a lot of the action. And in particular, that white line for Apple up seven, eight percent at this point. It has been seen in many different lights over the course of the last couple of weeks during bouts of volatility to the upside and downside. Is it a safety trade? Is it a growth trade? It seems to have been both at one point or another over the last week. We'll keep an eye on Apple shares. Let's get more on the markets overall and where the options action is. For that, we bring in John Najarian, Market Rebellion, co-founder, also a CNBC contributor, a guy you'll see a lot on the halftime report. John, thank you very much for being here this morning. What's caught your eye over the course of the last week? Has it been that mega cap tech trade? Have you seen a lot of activity there? Uh, we certainly have, Dom, and you're exactly right. You, you talked about Apple um, and, you know, how it helped lead tech back. Uh, it held on to those gains yesterday. That was very impressive to see Apple. Um, it was either within 10 or 15 cents of up or down at the end of the day yesterday, Dom. And that's pretty impressive given the just whack uh, that a lot of people gave to some of those mega tech names mega cap techs. So Apple, they continue to bet on upside calls all the way out to nearly Christmas, Dom. Um, So not just very, very short term, like December 10th today, but out a week, out two weeks, all the way to the end of the year, they're betting that 175, 180, 185, those are all numbers. And you and I both know why, because anything over, what is it, 182, Dom, puts it at a $3 trillion market cap. I think that's part of what is driving it. But then it's speculation on the um, EV that they may be involved with, whether they make it on their own or not. Uh, I think that's a lot of the spec that's got Apple uh, shares just bubbling higher. So, so we know that there's, a, there's certainly a lot of retail and institutional interest in, in, in Apple specifically. I mean, it's a magnet. It's the biggest company out there, and it, it gets a lot of traffic. Mm-hmm. Where else are you seeing it? Is it just in some of those mega cap names, or, or, or can we go down the, the, the spectrum here into other parts of the tech and comm services market that you feel as though are getting more attention now that have not been getting the attention that Apple has over the last several months now? Well, um, earlier in the week, Dom, um, uh, Snapchat, for instance, um, whether or not it was what uh, Chris and uh, uh, her daughter Kim Kardashian are doing with Snapchat right now, um, whether that was something that people either anticipated or knew about and the stock made a pretty decent pop and held on to it, again, like Apple, um, I think it was only down about a dollar yesterday. Um, and it made a somewhat dramatic move, let's say 47 to 52 in two or three days. I mean, th- that's a pretty decent pop. That's not a mega cap, but we all know sort of the troubles that Twitter has had of late with Dorsey departing and with people wondering what's going to be happening with socials in particular, you know, whether it's Meta 
or whether it's uh, um, something like uh, Snapchat, people are willing to speculate on some of those names, Dom. Um, I'd, I'd also point out that Oracle, you know, which uh, used to be one of the mainstays, just like Apple is now, that we'd always talk about. If you spoke of tech and you didn't speak of Cisco and Oracle, you weren't really talking about tech. Uh, but Oracle, there was a lot of upside speculation and calls. Obviously, they blew out the earnings. Um, what was it? We had the uh, December 90 all the way up to the 94 calls. I think the stock touched 100 in the after hours last night. And that just kind of shows you that uh, people are still, even on a week where you're up 3.5%, you've got people betting on some of these stocks into earnings, and they were richly rewarded for that on that bet anyway. You know, you know, John, I mean, Oracle has been one of those, you know, it's not that we don't talk about it. It's a 200 and almost a $250 billion company now, a software giant. But it's been the steady performer that's just gone up and up and up. It's still, it's up like 32, 37% I'm looking year to date for, for shares of Oracle. Mm-hmm. There have been trades like that throughout the course of this market that have arguably rewarded and compensated investors in a way that could have at least stemmed some of the effects of the inflation that we're seeing on the consumer front. You look at the inflation number we're expecting today. You look at the stock market overall. Do investors have to be in the stock market just to counter the effects of inflation? Well, certainly if they have the money to be in the stock market, and it doesn't take millions, obviously, um, but and off, that's why ETFs are so popular, quite frankly, because a lot of folks with $1,000 to invest on up to five or $10,000, um, it's really difficult to uh, trade you know, a single share of Apple and a couple shares of Microsoft and Amazon and things like that. So I, th- I get it. That's why Kathy Wood did so well in the past years. Um, it's why uh, a lot of those ETFs or exchange-traded funds in the tech sector even my buddy Kev, Kevin O'Leary, I think he had one of the hot um, uh, tech stock plays last year um, for an ETF, and it just really rewarded any investor who was in there without having that much deeper pockets that you need to be fully invested in the stock market. But yeah, you're making a great point, Dom, um, that it certainly has been a great way to offset 6% inflation which is, you know, the number we had last quarter was, what, 6.2% or something like that. Um, If you want to offset that, you need some sort of asset that's appreciating. If you're a renter, you're not getting it from your house. So the stock market is probably the next best place. All right. John and Jerry with a call there. Thank you very much. We'll see you later on today, John. Appreciate it. Thank thank you. Now to this morning's top story. Silvana Hinao is back with those. Silvana. Hey, Dom. Uh, Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for federal regulators to open criminal and civil investigations into the company formerly known as Facebook. Warren says she wants the Justice Department and SEC to focus on allegations the company misled advertisers, investors and the public about public safety and ad reach on its platform and whether that violates U.S. wire fraud and securities laws. The call by Warren comes a day after fellow Democratic Senator Maria Cantwell called on the FTC to investigate whether Facebook violated the agency's law against unfair or deceptive business practices. 
Sticking with tech, Google executives are acknowledging worker worries about inflation, but say they have no plans to boost pay to help combat rising prices. CNBC has obtained audio of a special meeting earlier this week that was focused on the company's strategy for next year in which the question was raised. Executives said while they are paying high labor costs, they have shot down the idea of company-wide pay adjustments. And Elon Musk continues to unload shares of Tesla. According to new regulator filings, the company's CEO has sold another $963 million worth of Tesla stock, marking the fifth straight week he sold shares. Meanwhile, Tesla has been sued by a second female employee over claims of sexual harassment. Both lawsuits allege a hostile work environment against women at Tesla's U.S. factory. Dom? All right, Silvana, thank you very much for those headlines there. Turning to the ongoing supply chain crisis, now bleeding into the holiday toy retail scene, the Toy Insider reporting that some of this year's hottest toys are not available online, leading consumers to actually frequent more local brick-and-mortar stores rather than the big e-commerce players like Amazon and Walmart. Joining us now is James Zahn, senior editor of The Toy Insider, with the update. James, what exactly is the hot toy right now that you cannot find and that you have to go to these local stores to get? Um, Absolutely, without question, Moose Toys has the Magic Mixies, Magic Misting Cauldron. That has been in and out of stock everywhere since it first hit the scene in October. Very hard to find right now. And there's a couple of other items, too, that are really hard to find. The LOL Surprise OMG House of Surprises, Spin Master's Bat Tech Bat Cave. There's a few items that are really hot, and you're just not going to find them unless you're very lucky. So, so James, if you take, I mean, these things are, are as a parent, I've got two small children. I'm, I'm looking for some of these things, if I can find them. What exactly, then, has been the impact of these supply chain issues on shelves? And is it regional? Where exactly can you find things or not find things? Do you, do you just say that the e-commerce players are, all, are, are the ones that are most impacted by this? What exactly is, the, 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 I guess, the huge ripple effect that this has had on the toy business? So, you know, the overused word is unprecedented, but it really is because... Going into fall, we thought we were going to see these mass outages, and what it became was this regional thing where you'd go to a Target store in Illinois and find packed shelves, but then a Target store in New York was completely empty. It was all of the domestic issues with trucking and rail and such that had really uh, kind of exacerbated the whole issue across the country. But then now we hit uh, Black Friday and Cyber Week, and all of the major players started getting shipments of inventory it was like literally the ships had come in because walmart and target of course chartered their own vessels so all of this merchandise has started showing up in the past couple of weeks so now here we are second week of december and the shelves are getting packed with merchandise that should have been here september october so there are great toys on the shelves at brick and mortar but a few of those top hot items like we discussed are going to be really hard to get because they're already floating around the secondary market. The flipper market, scalpers, that's a huge deal right now. So those products are hard to come by, but at the same time, you're not going to go out and find, oh, the shelves are empty and there's no Christmas. There's lots of great toys out there. All right, James on at the Toy Insider with the details on how supply chains are being impacted. Thank you very much and good luck this season. Take care. 
Coming up on the show, Diana Olick has the latest installment of her Rising Risks series and new data on the economic disparity that communities are facing as a result of climate change. Well, what exchange is back after this? Welcome back. New findings just released to CNBC shedding fresh light on the debate over whether rising temperatures are impacting lower income communities more than wealthier ones. And the data has big implications not only for the health of residents, but for the health of local economies as well. Our own Diana Olick explains in her continuing series on the rising risks from climate change. On a searing summer day in New York City, volunteers fanned out in cars with special sensors, tracking both heat and humidity. From the crowded tenement and truck-lined streets of the South Bronx to the open avenues of Manhattan's Upper East Side. By mapping so specifically, they were proving that poorer neighborhoods are hotter. As community members who actually fight for justice and social justice and environmental justice, we can now say there is actual data that says we see, you know, and feel heat differently than everywhere else. Bronx native Melissa Barber has fought for everything from community gardens like this one to redesigning the Bronx waterfront to literally cool the area around it. Now, working with Columbia University researcher Liv Yoon, she's using heat mapping to make a case for change to local officials and real estate developers. How our data will differ from pre-existing data is that we are getting extremely granular data, like street-level data, whereas what right now exists is satellite imagery. The heat trackers told a striking story. On one afternoon in July, there was at least a seven-degree difference between the South Bronx, one of the poorest parts of New York City, and the Upper East Side, one of the wealthiest. The difference was even wider between the South Bronx and Central Park. Historically redlined areas, certainly they have less infrastructure that is conducive to cooling. They have less green spaces. I mean, this this is an exception in the South Bronx. When we experience heat here, many times we experience it anywhere from 10 to 15 degrees hotter. The sensors were provided by Oregon-based Kappa Strategies, a climate data and analytics firm that works with the federal government, local municipalities, and nonprofits. It's really important because heat is one of the most insidious killers in cities. It kills more people than any other natural hazard. And he says climate change is upping the ante as local economies now shut down more often due to deadly heat. We're seeing greater intensity of heat. We're seeing longer durations of those heat waves. And we're seeing more frequent heat waves come through. And yet we're still using one single number to tell us what the temperature is for a city or a region. The data helps communities target their financial resources toward reducing temperatures. For example, like creating more green spaces, lighter colored rooftops, more space between buildings, and more cooling centers. We want to empower the local citizen scientists who participated so they own the data. New York is one of 12 cities participating in the heat mapping campaign, which is in conjunction with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The findings also show that the hotter it gets, the greater the heat divide and temperatures are rising. Of course, globally, last July was the Earth's hottest on record. Dom. So, so Diana, why is this data so valuable 
in the hands of, of certain people out there, maybe like real estate developers. You mentioned this idea that you have to space out buildings. You have to kind of change the way you zone things. How exactly then do, you, do developers use this data? Well, because they're the ones who are going to be able to make the change. Cities are only going to be able to do so much. And developers are always looking for that next great hip neighborhood, right? If they can look at this data and prove and say that by redeveloping, adding those green spaces, making the buildings set in a different way so that there's more space between them, they can make that case that this neighborhood is going to be more valuable, not just more healthy, but more valuable to their investors, but also to the city as well. And that could help form these partnerships that would be the ones one way to change all this. The evolution of business and real estate because of things like climate change. Dinah Olick, thank you very much for that. We appreciate it. On deck for the show, Oppenheimer's John Stolfus lays out the trading day ahead as we await that critical inflation data for consumers. And if you have not already done so, please follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple or Spotify or your podcast app of choice. Worldwide Exchange audio format. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your weekly exclusive insider buying segment where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level executives with their own money. As always, the data comes from insiderscore.com. And as always, we are counting you down from number five to number one. Number five, Best Buy. Its chairman buying about $2.1 million worth of stock as the stock came down in price from recent highs. So a Best Buy buy. Number four is Dick Sporting Goods. Its executive chairman, who was recently the CEO of the company, steps up with his first buy in seven years, buying nearly $3 million worth of Dick's shares. Number three is DocuSign. Its CEO stepping up, first ever insider buy, picking up just under $5 million worth on that recent weakness in DocuSign shares. And a note, he was a seller at $230 per share earlier this year. The number two stock on the list this week is Allegheny Corp., a $5.5 million insider buy by the incoming CEO of Joseph Brandon. Has been an insider, by the way, for a long time, though. This is his first buy since 2012. And the number one this week, Asana, Biggest ever insider buy we've seen in more than a year. CEO Duskin Moskowitz going big, buying about $89.2 million worth of Asana. He's now bought more than $400 million worth of his own stock over the long term. This stock was at about 143 bucks a share just about a month ago. Check that out, Asana. There you go, the names. Best Buy, Dix, DocuSign. Allegheny and Asana. So we do this almost every Friday, and it's a segment you will only see here on Worldwide Exchange or on CNBC Pro. Brian Sullivan's all over these insider transactions. Keep an eye out for those every single Friday. Well, back to the broader market. Stock futures right now indicating some slight gains at the opening bell. The Dow is implied higher by, oh, just roughly eight points. The S&P about six points, and the Nasdaq higher by 21. This has investors await what could be the highest year-over-year inflation read since the Ronald Reagan administration. Yes, Reagan was in the White House, 1982. Joining me now is John Stolfus, Oppenheimer Asset Management Chief Investment Strategist. How worried should we be, John, about the inflation picture? Do people, I asked John Najarian earlier, do people need to own stocks to hedge against inflation? Uh, Dominic, we would certainly say that people need to own stocks here. 
Uh, in our viewpoint, uh, stocks are, are, are excellently positioned, uh, diversified in the diversified portfolio representative, we think, of growthier value and garpier uh, growth, uh, we think is a good way to position for this. Uh, in, the first, uh, in the fourth quarter, what we've seen is technology, consumer discretionary, and materials have been the best performing sectors in, in this fourth quarter thus far. Uh, and we think that that's the way uh, we need to roll, considering where the economy is moving towards the next new normal. Uh, inflation should be, uh, you know, that, that the T word. Uh, well, we have to say we think inflation will come down next year as the supply chains begin to heal better. You know, it's interesting, John, I, 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 going back to the early days of my Wall Street career, back during the dot-com era, people referred to GARP, GARPier type things, growth at a reasonable price. But back then, it was hard to find growth at a reasonable price, reasonable price being the key. And then today, a lot of people complain about finding growth at a reasonable price. Where is there the reasonable price in the market? Well, we'd say you've got to look. You have to really dig. But we think it's in growth at a relatively reasonable price. And we feel that you find it in core technology and you find it in a combination within consumer discretionary of companies that are involved in the, that uh, bringing together bricks and mortar and uh, e-commerce. Uh, we also think you need to own value meantime because uh, the value should really pick up in here. And we think you want to own energy, you want to own materials and you want to own the financials as well, because we'll get a steepening yield curve. We, we expect next year, but not dramatically so. So so that how exactly do you position the portfolio if you if you're looking at all of those different pieces? Are, are there certain places that you want to be? more exposed to? You, you mentioned the, the crossroads of e-commerce and, and, and brick and mortar. You mentioned some of the, the, the backbone type stocks. What's the overweight there? Well, uh, Dominic, what you want, want to consider in, 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 that, in that overweighting, for instance, in technology, you really want to own the chips. A semiconductor is very important. I mean, you heard John Najarian a little bit earlier. We certainly agree with that. And, and then your uh, guest who was talking about the metaverse ties that all to, uh, all in together. Uh, the metaverse may be a little bit early for, uh, for investors uh, to look at at this point, for, for more conservative investors. But at this point, what we'd like to say is you want those core technology names that are every day in your life. And uh, the, because I manage money for the firm, uh, Oppenheimer does not want me disclosing individual stocks that we own at this time. But what I can tell you is they're the name, just think of the names that you're familiar with uh, and, and the ones that are the ones that are profitable, that have excellent cash flow and that bring innovation to the table, whether it's through acquisitions they make or expanding the services that they offer. So, John, if inflation is not exactly as transitory and we do think that the Fed is going to raise rates, would you now be just cyclically underweight bonds in the, in the coming months and years? Oh, well, we have been cyclically underweight bonds in the portfolios that I manage uh, for several years now. Uh, we have not been believers that interest rates are going to rise significantly, but we do expect them to rise to a more normal level. But within that new normal concept that we have come to live with since 2009. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, we just think if, for, for bonds to feel comfortable, uh, you know, you have to be short on duration or you have to look for bonds that it, within credits 
that have an opportunity to see uh, the credit rating improve and, and some potential for capital appreciation because the coupons sure. just don't satisfy our need for growth. All right. John Solfus at Oppenheimer. Thank you very much. Have a nice weekend, sir. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. Have a great weekend, everyone. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.